Well, here we are in 1848. Um, took us and there while. were, yeah, it took us a while. <laughs> and you know, it took Marx a while. This is the year that Marx published the communist. Marx and Engels published their communist manifesto. That's right. So, um, a lot of revolutionary energy. Mm-hmm. And we're going. We're we're not going to start in England or Germany. Well, we just did England, so we're starting in France. Um, yeah, we'll start with Louis Philippe. So after the 1830 revolution, this is the fellow who was chosen to be their constitutional monarch. Uh, Louis Philippe was a liberal as a young man. Uh, in fact, in the French Revolution Part One, he served the revolution. His father was the uh, Bourbon prince who changed his name to Philippe Égalité and actually voted for the execution of Louis XVI, which is pretty amazing. Uh, in any case, uh, Louis-Philippe was in exile from 1793 to 1815, and it's this reputation as a liberal that won him the crown in 1830. Victor Hugo was an early fan of Louis-Philippe. I was reading about Victor Hugo. He uh, had a very interesting life. He had like multiple um, partners, <laughs> let's say. Okay. Who all knew each other, and everybody was cool, apparently. Um, but he wasn't just a writer. He was a pretty active politician and revolutionary. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he didn't just talk the talk. Uh, in any case, yeah, he liked Louis-Philippe early on. Uh, Louis-Philippe ruled in a, uh, well, an unpretentious manner. He avoided excessive pomp and display. They called him the Citizen King and the bourgeois monarch. He still carried on the conquest of Algeria, uh, but then he started to change. His policies became increasingly conservative. Uh, he cooperated more and more with the richest of the liberals and the old aristocrats, so conditions for the working class were getting worse. The income gap was widening. If you remember our episode on the Industrial Revolution in Britain, France was experiencing some of the worst of that. Uh, as uh, Jacques Lafitte put it, from now on, the bankers will rule. Yeah, and that was, um, in terms of like the urban blight, I think we mentioned this in, when I was talking about Algeria, but the same way that the British uh, thought of Australia, and I guess to a lesser extent Canada, as their safety valves uh, for overcrowding in the cities and, and crime mm -hmm. and social problems caused by the industrial their industrial revolution policies, really. Uh, France kind of saw Algeria that way and would yes. send people over to Algeria. Yes. Well, they would have sent more to French Guyana, but I guess there wasn't enough space and they weren't dying quickly enough. So, yes, Algeria was a, a safety valve. Uh, Louis-Philippe survived seven assassination attempts, which suggests that there were some people who were unhappy with him. So in 1848, a revolution broke out in Paris. There were multiple, multiple causes. Uh, liberals, I guess the small L liberals, not the richest ones. Um, socialists. Outside of France, nationalists. Part of it was due to the Industrial Revolution and, as I said, the worsening of working conditions for workers. There was an economic background to the uh, economic shock of 1847, where 10,000 workers were laid off in Vienna. And there were some agricultural 
problems too on the continent, right? Like famine. Well, potato, well the potato famine wasn't only in Ireland. Yeah. Ireland's yeah. the only place that had a famine because of it, but there were the potato blight hit parts of Europe very hard. There were food shortages, uh, land pressure. The population was rising in the rural areas, and the government didn't really do anything to provide or change for these people. So mass emigration was the order of the day. This is the period when tens of thousands of people start leaving Europe and going to the new world just in hopes of better conditions. Uh, constitutionalism ideas were also big uh, ideas like constitutionalism universal suffrage freedom of speech things we saw in the reform movement in England that didn't cause a revolution but they did in other parts of Europe so in 1848 there were revolutions in 50 countries and I think that's just Europe because it also spread <clears throat> elsewhere but wow. as usual it started in Paris uh, there was a reform movement basically copying the English reform movement, so they're putting pressure on the government. But there was also a really interesting thing going on called the Campaign of Banquets. So it became a, a thing that people would get together, have a banquet in public, where they would raise their glasses and toast the republic. And the To get away from, like, uh, assembly, illegal assembly kind of laws, right? Uh, like par partly, but also just a poke in the eye to King Louis-Philippe because the toast was Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, which is about as Jacobin as you get. And, you know, toasting the Republic when you have a king <laughs> is uh, asking for a revolution, promoting... Provocative, one. yeah. Yeah. So in February of 1848, the French government banned banquets. You're not allowed to do this anymore. And that was enough for the people of Paris. They put up the barricades. They took to the streets, started peeling off the roof tiles and getting ready for confrontation. And uh, the prime minister uh, resigned. Crowds gathered outside the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the troops opened fire on them. 50 people were killed. And that just did it for the rest of Paris. Uh, the whole city erupted and the streets were blocked by felled trees. Apparently they cut down thousands of trees to make barricades and block the streets. Uh, Louis-Philippe saw the writing on the wall. He abdicated and uh, tried to abdicate in favor of his nine-year-old grandson and fled to England. Now, if you remember the 1830 episode, this has happened before, a revolution that succeeded so quickly that people were shocked. So the conservatives are obviously stunned. The liberals are considering their options, same as in 1830. But the radicals and the republicans, they remember how the liberals stole their revolution and brought in Louis-Philippe. And they're saying, not this time. So they didn't wait. They just pushed ahead. They set up a provisional government. Uh, Alphonse de Lamartine was the leader of the provisional government. He was a poet, uh, an author. He wrote a history of the Girondins. So, you know, you can tell where his uh, revolutionary credentials come from. He's been described as a liberal. I'm, I'm not sure because he was basically the leader of a group of Republicans and socialists. And they had two goals that were quite clear from, from the very beginning. The first was universal suffrage. We're going to have a republic and we're going to have one vote for one man. 
and let's not wait. So what they did is they announced everybody votes, well, all the men vote, and we're going to have a presidential election for the first time in French history. And the second thing that they wanted to do right away was deal with the uh, working conditions, and they wanted to uh, relieve unemployment. So following the ideas of a socialist named Louis Blanc, they were going to create what they called national workshops, where the workers would actually have a stake in the enterprise. And the government was going to create these shops and put people to work. And they created, I think in a matter of a month or two, 100,000 jobs in Paris. So the revolution started to spread. Obviously, the news of an uprising in Paris was you know, front page news everywhere. So it's it spread and things started to happen around Europe. But if it's okay with you, we'll stay in France uh, for a little while and sure. follow what happened. And then we'll see where it spread. So the conservatives began to recover from their shock and were horrified at the idea of universal suffrage. And many liberals started to get scared too because universal suffrage means my workers will be voting. You know, what if they vote for higher wages or a day off? What am I going to do? So the liberals and the conservatives began to coalesce, to come together, and they still dominated the assembly. So in June, they shut down the national workshops that the provisional government had set up. Uh, what they were afraid of was a flood of unemployed workers who were pouring into Paris looking for jobs. So they were, they were afraid of these poor people. So they shut down the national workshops. Well, that just set off the revolutionaries even more. So the barricades went back up and the students and the radicals took to the streets. Uh, the National Assembly sent the army in. Uh, the conservatives and liberals were quite united on this. So this is a period known as the June days. Uh, General Cavagnac began a, a systematic assault on Paris uh, using, you know, eventually uh, almost 200,000 troops. The workers and the students fought back, uh, but the liberals stayed at home. This is class warfare. It's basically the working class against the army that belongs to the elites. Uh, Marx was watching very closely. As you say, he had just published the uh, Communist Manifesto. And he thought, well, here it is, exactly what I've been predicting. You know, the workers are, are rising. Unfortunately, the workers lost. Uh, 10,000 were killed. And as you said, uh, 4,000 were deported to Algeria. So now what you have, it's really, really, really odd situation. You have a conservative reactionary government backed by the army with a presidential election coming, which they don't dare cancel because of fear of rural uprisings. If you take away these people's votes before they've had a chance to use it, are you prepared for the chaos that might ensue? So the Conservatives decided to let the election go through and they ran their own candidate. They ran General Cavagnac on a law and order platform, which sounds kind of familiar. So the election, the election was held in December uh, 1848 and I just find the results fascinating. Um, there were six candidates. The first was Nicolas Changarnier. He was a monarchist and he got 4,790 votes or about 0.1% of the total. Uh, de Lamartine, the liberal who had been 
head of the provisional government got 17,000 votes, but that's 0.2%. François-Vincent Raspail, a socialist, got 36, 37,000 votes. That's about one half of 1%. Alexandre Ledru-Rollin was a Republican. Uh, the French had two types of Republicans, red and blue. So the red Republicans were a little more radical, and the blue Republicans were the more conservative version. Anyway, Ledru Rollin got 370,000 votes, about 5% of the total. Cavignac, running on a conservative law and order platform, got 1.4 million votes, uh, not quite 20% of the vote. And it's the final candidate who was the big surprise. His name was Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, and he ran on a Bonapartist platform, and he got 5.4 million votes, about 74 Point three percent of the total <laughs> sleeper the the sleeper horse but okay i have two questions that arise one how fair was this election and two who's allowed to vote in this election um adult male french men okay okay 21 years and older so no property qualification none nothing. none and how fair was it? Um, it's the first presidential election of this type in France. I don't think they had the mechanism to cheat effectively. Uh -huh. What they expected, uh, Cavagnac himself didn't expect to win. Once he heard that Bonaparte was in the election, he thought, ah, oh, crap. But he thought that Bonaparte would get less than 50%, in which case the assembly would have been allowed to uh, adjudicate the election and they would have picked him. So they were prepared to cheat after the fact. They just underestimated the landslide that was coming. So who who the hell is Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, and how did he get 75% of the vote? This is a landslide. This is ridiculous. So part of this is the legend of Napoleon the first has been growing. So it's been uh, quite a few years since Napoleon abdicated for the second time. And that means that memories of the period have started to be a little rose-colored, a little uh, nostalgia, that we've forgotten all of the pain and suffering, and we just remember the glory. Um, also, by comparison, the Bourbon monarchs, you know, they don't look that great compared to the Napoleonic era. Um, Napoleon himself died in 1821. Uh, in 1840, Louis-Philippe had his body returned to France. Uh, they created a massive tomb in Les Invalides, which was a, a military hospital, but now it's basically a Napoleonic military museum and, and temple. Uh, if you've seen his tomb, it's just <laughs> massive. Uh, in 1836, the Arc de Triomphe was uh, constructed at the top of the Champs-Élysées pretty hard to miss and it's inscribed with the names uh, of the armies the french revolutionary and, and napoleonic armies and their commanders so it's like an open history book and a celebration of all things napoleonic and then you have the novels victor hugo uh, alexandre dumas and this glorification of the napoleonic period so as i said we forget all the pain and suffering that he caused and we just remember all the victories. 
So Bonapartism is a thing. This is the descendants of Napoleon and his generals and his marshals and the soldiers who fought in these wars who feel disadvantaged under the Bourbon kings. It's a little more than nostalgia. They just think that things would be great if we could put a descendant of Napoleon on the throne. So Louis Napoleon is his nephew, the son of Louis, the king of Holland, and of Hortense de Beauharnais. This is Josephine's daughter. It wasn't a happy marriage, but uh, put yourself in the shoes of Louis Napoleon. He was born in 1808. Napoleon was his godfather. And then by the age of six or seven, uh, it's all over. So he would grow up knowing, you know, I was a prince when I was a kid. And then he lived in exile in Switzerland. Uh, he moved to Rome. He was involved with the Carbonari, the Italian nationalist secret or society. He came pretty close to being arrested by the Austrians, so he fled in 1831. And then I guess he was in touch with friends in France and decided, oh, what the hell? And he tried to launch a coup, uh, a rather comical failure in 1836. Uh, he fled after that one. He tried again in 1840, and it was another fiasco. They would make great comedy films, I think. Uh, he was tried and sentenced to life imprisonment. So while he was in prison, he wrote articles. He wrote a, uh, a long pamphlet, almost a book, called The Extinction of Pauperism. So basically outlining how he would help the poor and the workers. In 1846, he escaped he just walked right out of the prison disguised as a laborer. He had help from the inside. And when his father, Louis, died, he became the next in line for the Bonapartist uh, hopes. Napoleon's son had died of uh, disease, I think, at the age of 18 or 20. So Louis Napoleon is now the number one uh, great hope of the Bonapartists. And when he heard of the election, he figured, what have I got to lose? He threw his name in. Now, he didn't come back to France right away. He was afraid of getting arrested as an escaped con. But he threw his name in. And uh, I think the results surprised even him. He had a uh, financial backer, a wealthy English mistress named Harriet Howard. And she provided the money. And he was even endorsed by uh, some conservatives, uh, Adoltier for example, who figured that it's not ideal, but we can control him. This is a theme that you'll hear later in other places in history where this radical figure, the conservatives figure, oh, we can work with him, we can control him. Victor Hugo supported him. His newspaper published, uh, we have confidence in him. He carries a great name. And that's basically it. He was elected for his name maybe a bit like a Kennedy in the U.S. or a Gandhi in India. doesn't matter what your first name or your gender is if your name's Bonaparte. And remember uh, how many of the French voters were voting for the very first time. They weren't uh, au courant with the politics in Paris, but when it came to voting for the first time, they certainly recognized the name. After this, you get a very weird situation where the assembly, dominated by conservatives and their liberal allies, have a bit of a radical unknown wildcard figure as a president. So 
they had enough power to block Louis Napoleon if he tried to do anything radical. So at first he had to uh, watch carefully what he did. There was another uh, socialist radical uprising in Paris, which he crushed. The conservatives approved. And then the assembly changed the suffrage. They didn't want this to happen again, so they imposed a condition for voting. You had to have a three-year residency requirement. You, you simply had to live in the same place in France for three years, which effectively stripped the votes from three and a half million men, you know, the workers who had to move and, and shift places to keep their jobs or to find a new one. So this was a deliberate attempt to uh, take the votes away from poor workers. And uh, Thiers called them the vile multitude Louis Napoleon tried to restore the vote. That proposal was defeated in the assembly. He also proposed laws that would have favored workers, which also didn't pass. But they made him look like the champion of the people. You know, the assembly is taking away your rights and your votes, and he's trying to get them back for you. Now, according to the Constitution of 1848, Louis Napoleon was only allowed one four-year term. He was not uh, eligible for re-election. He would have to step down. So he argued that four years wasn't enough time. Um, he asked for a change to the Constitution. He didn't get it, but he did get an exception that would allow him to run a second time. But that wasn't good enough. Uh, he was a big fan of his namesake, his godfather Napoleon, and began to pattern himself after his uncle which is why on the 2nd of December, 1851, he launched a coup d'etat against his own government. So he overthrew uh, the assembly. He'd been placing his friends in key positions in the army and the government, and the date, December 2nd, was no coincidence. That was the anniversary of Austerlitz and the anniversary of the coronation, self-coronation of Napoleon I. So the coup didn't go all that smoothly, uh, they had to bring troops back from Algeria, commanded by General de Saint-Arnaud. They occupied key points in Paris. They had members of the assembly arrested in their homes. And when Paris woke up in the morning, there were posters all over town uh, announcing the dissolution of the assembly, universal suffrage restored, new elections. Um, they had to arrest another 220 members of the assembly. By December... Victor Hugo had had enough. He and some Republicans tried to organize opposition and the barricades went up again. Uh, Napoleon used soldiers to crush this uprising, three or four hundred killed. There were uprisings in some of the Republican towns and they were put down. Uh, there's a book uh, by one Karl Marx about this called mm -hmm. The 18th Brumiere of Louis Bonaparte. And this is where the famous quote about... Uh, history repeating itself. So it goes like this. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. Cossidier for Danton, Louis Blanc for Robespierre, the Montagne of 1848 to 1851 for the Montagne of 1793 to 1795, the nephew for the uncle. And the same caricature occurs in the circumstances of the second edition of the 18th Brumier. You know, normally I would be very cautious with comparisons like that. But yeah. in the case of Louis Napoleon, it's more than appropriate. 
Because was, well, Marx, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was deliberately trying to emulate his, his uncle. Yeah. Right down to the same dates. Well, as I said, it didn't go all that smoothly. Uh, 26,000 people had to be arrested. 239 were sent to French Guyana, which is a death sentence. Uh, 1,500 were expelled from France, and almost 10,000 were sent to Algeria. So there's your safety valve again. Uh, censorship of the press. And then Louis Napoleon did something very modern, something that his uncle had done as well. He had a referendum. Uh, sort of a, how do you like me now? Uh, the question was, do you approve of the coup? Uh, let's see the results here. 7,439,000 voted yes. 641,000 voted no. And 1.7 million abstained. Uh, in case the math is, is not obvious, that's an approval rating of over 90%. And I always loved when my students said, wow, Oh, that's that's a lot of support. And I say, yeah, how do you think he got 90% plus? <laughs> I would say, what if Jesus Christ came back and ran for president of the United States? How how many votes do you think he'd get? Uh, he'd lose the anti-Semitic vote, for starters. Yeah, the beard would probably turn off conservatives. Yep. And the stuff about sharing and, you know... That sounds smacks of socialism. Very un-American. Turn the other cheek. Oh, he's probably going to cut the military budget. Yeah. So anyway, the the obvious answer is he cheated. He cheated? It wasn't a matter of intimidation at the polls, but just stuffing the box? Oh, kind of he just counted the votes and then published the numbers he wanted. Right. Look, if you're if you're one of the people who voted no, the message is very clear. You belong to a very small minority. It might not be wise to publish the fact, you know, to make a big deal about it and, and be one of the next round of arrests that gets shipped to Algeria. He had another referendum shortly thereafter with a new question. Should Napoleon be emperor? And the result was a resounding yes. I mean, if the people want it, what's, what's he to do? 97% voted yes. Wow. How can you refuse when, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, speaking of beards, that was a, an interesting little side note. Uh, in the new elections, something like a third of voters abstained, and students at universities were forbidden to wear beards because apparently they were a symbol of republicanism. And Louis Napoleon was trying to convince French people that they'd be better off with him as emperor. In any case, he went ahead and did it. December 2nd, 1852, the anniversary of his godfather's coronation, the anniversary of Austerlitz and of his coup, and he crowned himself Napoleon III. He skipped uh, Napoleon II in honor of his cousin, the son of Napoleon, who had died. And there you have it, a French revolution that really was a revolution. They went 360 degrees. <laughs> it's almost like two revolutions. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean that one of the things that um, they meant the, one of the books I read about Algeria last for two episodes ago mentioned that no matter what happens domestically from from the point that they invade, they the colony remains. You know, so it's like a continuity. You can have all the revolutions you like, but uh, Algeria is going to stay a colony until they become independent on their own yeah. steam. 
Yeah. So as I said before, the, the news of the French Revolution in Paris as early as February 1848 spread very quickly. They heard about it in Brussels the next day. And the reaction in Belgium was, uh, you know, been there, done that. They, they had their successful revolution in 1830. Don't need another one. Uh, the news hit London, where the government was terrified. And we covered this in the last episode. So the Chartists got out their dusted off the old petition. And there were protests in Manchester and Glasgow and Dublin. And the government responded by uh, reactionary laws and by hiring 100,000 special constables to bolster the police force. Uh, they imposed martial law in Ireland, where the famine was in full uh, gear, and they didn't have a revolution for reasons we touched on in the last episode. Uh, the news hit Denmark, where the king accepted a constitution and an elected parliament called the Riksdag, so Denmark got more liberal. Uh, the news hit Spain, where they were already in a civil war, the Second Carlist War. I don't know that we can do Spanish history justice, but from the from 1815 to 48, they had several revolutions, several civil wars, uh, monarchists versus liberals, uh, Catalonia against Madrid, a conflict that you know still still resonates. Uh, the Conservatives and the Liberals alternated in power from, I guess, 1833 on. But after the Conservatives were in power for a decade, the Radicals started pushing for universal suffrage. They had a revolution in 1852, counter-revolution in 1854. Pretty chaotic situation, which I don't think I can cover, <laughs> do any justice to. The news of the French Revolution Part Three spread to South America. Colombian students and liberals demanded the election of General José Hilario López. Uh, he initiated major reforms, abolished slavery, instituted freedom of the press. Um, but after that, things got chaotic. From 1851 to 85, there were four civil wars and 50 separate uprisings that you would call maybe a, a localized revolution. Wow. Uh, Brazil had the Praera revolt that was centered around Pernambuco that lasted from 1848 to 52. Uh, Mexico had its issues, which we will get to in the next episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sweden and Switzerland both moved in a more liberal direction. In fact, Switzerland basically took a lot of the power from the cantons and became a little more centralized. And then the news eventually reached Russia where absolutely nothing happened. And that's one of the most interesting aspects of 1848. England avoided a revolution and Russia didn't had barely a ripple. Yeah, I mean, just in anticipation of the Mexican-American War episode that we'll do, I, this is also the, in the U.S., this is Jacksonian democracy, right? So Jackson is, uh, Andrew Jackson is really extending a lot of the war, uh, warfare against uh, Indian Indian nations. And then eventually in 1848, there's war by Polk against uh, the Me Mexico. But also in this time is when, uh, the franchise in the U.S. is also the property restriction is 
removed and it becomes a franchise for all white men. So it's very much, again, a racial project, but it's like that racial within that master race, there's democracy. So that's the uh, Jacksonian democracy. So in a way, the U.S. is also not um, immune from this trend. They just uh, they just take it in their own special direction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the the news of the revolution in France got to Germany. At the time Germany had Germany was a collection of 39 separate independent states. Some some fairly small, but some considerable size like Bavaria and Saxony and Prussia. Every single one of those 39 states had a revolution. The barricades went up, the students and the radicals were there, the liberals were there, but they were joined on the barricades by nationalists as well. So one of the big themes of all these uprisings in Germany was the possibility of uniting Germany. 38 of the governments basically fell. The single exception was Prussia. The king of Prussia watched these people on the barricades and thought, what is going on? Who, who are these people? And he was informed, well, they're liberals who are unhappy with autocracy and absolutism. They're radicals and students who want freedoms. They're workers who want better working conditions. They're nationalists who dream of, you know, uniting Germany. They're peasants who still labor under feudalism. And that's basically what happened the German states had to concede. First of all, they, they abolished feudalism. So feudalism in one stroke was swept away across Germany. Something that happened in France in 1790 is now coming to Germany you know, almost 60 years later. Um, most of the rulers conceded constitutions. Others had them imposed. And then the, the German nationalists organized a pan-German assembly in Frankfurt, in the Rhineland, to discuss the possibilities of uniting Germany. So you had delegates from across Germany elected, 586 of them. And interesting here, of those 586, 94 were university profs and 30 were teachers. It's an educator's revolution. Well, they called the assembly, the, you know, the teacher's convention. <laughs> so the questions that were raised there, okay, do we have a monarchy or a republic, a hereditary constitutional monarchy, or a republic with a president? If we have either of those, do we have a federation of relatively independent states or a strong central government? And then the biggest question of all, was the question of Gross Deutschland versus Kleine Deutschland. So Grosse is big. Big Germany and Kleine is little. So big Germany or little Germany. Basically, the big Germans, their attitude was anywhere you find a large collection of Germans, they should be in Germany. So that would include not just the 39 German states, but all property that they own, including the, the, the chunks of Poland that belong to Prussia, 
it would include the Austrians because they're Germans. It would include the Germans living in Bohemia, the Czech lands. And it would include lots of Germans spread throughout Central and Eastern Europe. So basically, we would take all the German states and the Habsburg Empire and combine them into a mega state that would basically be all of Central Europe. So this is probably inspired in part by England's, you know, notion that the free Englishman has Englishman's rights anywhere the Englishman goes in the world, right? Partly. It's that kind of kind of notion of like, you know, we're the special kind of group of people that anywhere we are, we're is anywhere we are is our country. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. it's partly that. It's partly also if it, if the ruler is German, then that kingdom or that state could be in Germany, even if it brings in uh, Poles and Hungarians and Romanians and Czechs and Slovaks and you know all these other peoples. They, they'd be little minorities, but I think they're just intoxicated by drawing on the map and going, "Oh my God!" You know, you everything see, uh... between France and Russia would be us. You can see the seeds of uh, future problems in this uh, ideology. Meanwhile, the Kleine Deutsche are looking at the revolutions going on and they're saying, I don't know if we want all these minorities. Maybe we just want to stick with, you know, uh, states that have a majority of Germans. We don't want to end up with significant national minorities. So their view is maybe just go with the 39 German states and include Austria if they want to leave all their baggage behind, you know, their their empire. So the Frankfurt Assembly starts meeting, they start debating, they start discussing. Uh, the Austrians and Prussians send delegates just, you know, to observe. Uh, interesting little factoid here, the Prussian delegate was a young man, a young man named Otto von Bismarck, who spent most of his time blowing cigar smoke in the face of the Austrian delegate just to annoy him. So we'll hear more about him in, the, uh, in our Italian and German unification episode. A little bit more. We'll come back to the Germans, just as we did with France, because they're going to be busy for a while. And we'll go to where else the French Revolution spread, because the news of it hit Italy. Uh, interestingly enough, the Italians started early. In January of 1848, there was an uprising in Sicily against the King of Naples, who was considered you know, one of the most corrupt and inefficient monarchs in Europe. So he's dealing with a revolution there. Then the news of the February Paris uprising hits. And in March of 1848, you have uprisings across Northern Italy, Lombardy, Venetia. These are liberals and radicals and nationalists. Uh, Austrian general Radetzky had to withdraw from Milan and Charles Albert, King of Sardinia Piedmont decided to throw in his hand. He raised an army to push the Austrians out and to unite Italy. He published a liberal constitution and he reached out to other Italian rulers. He was joined by the Grand Duke of Tuscany, that's Florence, and by Pope Pius IX. The plan, believe it or not, was to unite Italy under the Pope. Kick out the Austrians, unite Italy, and make the Pope head of the whole thing. Meanwhile, there was an uprising in Prague and across Bohemia. These were Czechs and Germans both rising against the Habsburgs, the Austrians. But then they split. The Germans seemed more interested in nationalism and what was happening in Germany. The Czechs uh, realized that there weren't really enough of them 
to, uh, I guess, fight off the Austrians on their own. So they reached out to uh, other national minorities in the Habsburg Empire, and they called a Pan-Slavic Congress. They were hoping that the Slovaks, uh, Croats, Serbs, Romanians, uh, all these other groups would join them. The Slovaks had their own uprising. They were looking to break free of Hungarian control because within the Habsburg Empire, the Kingdom of Hungary was still uh, a separate, no, a semi-separate piece. The King of Hungary was, of course, the Austrian emperor, but the Slovaks were under the authority of the Kingdom of Hungary. So they were trying to break free of the Hungarians. Speaking of Hungary, there was a new cabinet that took power there under the leadership of Laios or Louis Kossuth. They immediately published a more liberal constitution that had uh, freedom of the press. They wanted annual parliamentary sessions and accountable ministers. Uh, Up till this point, the Austrian emperor appointed the ministers because he was also the king of Hungary. So the Hungarians want representative government. Uh, the abolition of serfdom, and they also wanted the Austrians to accept that no Hungarian soldiers would be sent abroad. There were uprisings in Vienna as well. The barricades went up. Uh, The Austrian government was really paralyzed. You have uprisings in every part of your empire, and they were, I guess, a little bit paralyzed. They didn't have much choice but to agree to the Hungarian demands, or at least to pretend to. So with that in their pocket, the Hungarians now began shutting down other revolutions. So they crushed the Slovak uprising, and they started fighting with uh, the other minorities in the Kingdom of Hungary, namely the Croats, the Serbs, and the Romanians. Uh, Banjelicic in Croatia managed to organize uh, a small army to you know, keep the Hungarians out. So rather than rebelling against Austria... You have these groups that are fighting back against the Hungarian rebels. It gets a little confusing, as you can can see. Uh, Back in Vienna, Emperor Ferdinand was a little bit stunned by what was going on. And when his own assembly, the Diet, demanded the resignation of Count Metternich, he said nothing in defense of his chancellor. Metternich was the arch-conservative in power since 1810. Yeah, we talked about him in our ideologies episode. Yeah, he's the guy that you uh, compared to, or that Kissinger was a big fan of. Well, Metternich finally fell and fled to England. The emperor appointed some new, uh, supposedly more liberal ministers, and then conceded what most of the revolutionaries were demanding. Feudalism was abolished, and some liberal rights were granted. They had a bit of a a tepid constitution. So feudalism being abolished is the huge gain. This is the uh, biggest achievement of the honeymoon period of the French Revolution, part one, and it's now spread across the Habsburg Empire and across Germany. So that's great news for peasants. Basically, at this point, they've won. However, Emperor Ferdinand, in his heart of hearts, was still conservative, and he still had an army uh, under General Windischgratz, which he decided to use. So the first target was Prague, because the Czechs are on their own. So Windischgratz bombarded the city and forced them to surrender and captured it. 
and that knocked the Czech Revolution out. In Italy, uh, the Austrians were not doing well, but the Pope basically backed out of the agreement with Sardinia and Tuscany and stopped backing them. And the Austrians were able to send reinforcements to Italy. There was a battle at Custosa, which the Sardinians lost. Milan had to surrender. And Austria agreed to an armistice with Sardinia and Tuscany. And that's basically the end of the major problem for them, but there are still radicals and nationalists running around in arms, uh, still trying to fight the Austrians, or, or that will eventually cause other problems. I'll come back to those. Now the emperor sent his army into Hungary, the last major uh, revolutionary group still going in his empire, but he couldn't defeat them. Uh, the, the Hungarians were just as strong, and, and they ended up with a stalemate. No, no side can win the war. But the Hungarians have seen that you know his promises were empty, that he really wants to crush them. So they now increase their demands to full autonomy, and some are even clamoring for independence. So the emperor backtracked. He reappointed conservative ministers, and that led to a brand new revolution in 1849, or the second wave of revolutions. The barricades went up in Vienna again, Prague again, and then all over northern Italy again, where some groups had never stopped fighting, but now it's really serious. The Pope was actually overthrown in Rome, where Italian nationalists set up a Republic of Rome, and they set up a triumvirate, little echo of ancient Rome. Uh, one of the three was Mazzini, the famous uh, Italian nationalist leader. And the king of Sardinia decided, ah, you know, if at first you don't succeed, so he went to war again. Emperor Ferdinand uh, decided to abdicate, uh, and he did so in favor of young Franz Joseph Habsburg, who was 18 years old. And Franz Joseph will be the second last ruler of the Habsburg Empire. He ruled from 1849 until 1916. <clears throat> but he was able to follow the same policy as Ferdinand. He was able to take on the revolutionaries one at a time because they never cooperated. The revolutionaries really did not get in touch. They didn't act together. They didn't coordinate. So Prague was recaptured. Vienna uh, was pacified. The army went back into Italy. Sardinia was defeated at uh, the Battle of Novara in March. Uh, France sent troops to protect the Pope. This was Napoleon the III uh, trying to win some legitimacy by pleasing Catholics and conservatives. So French troops went to Rome. They were initially defeated by uh, an Italian nationalist named Garibaldi. More on him later. But then more French troops came. Uh, Rome was recaptured and the Pope was restored. Uh, Venice held out the longest. They were uh, besieged and finally forced to surrender in August of 1849. And that left the Emperor Ferdinand exactly where he, or sorry, Franz Joseph, exactly where Ferdinand had been with Hungary still unbeaten. And the stalemate went on. The Austrians simply could not defeat the Hungarian rebels. Tsar Nicholas of Russia offered to help, and the Austrians gladly accepted his offer. So 100,000 Russian troops poured into Hungary, and that was more than the Hungarians could fight. So they were defeated, and that's the end of the revolutions in Austria. Which leads us back to... Germany. 
The last revolutionary group are still meeting in Frankfurt, and they've sort of finished the debate. They've agreed. The liberals have won. It's going to be a constitutional monarchy rather than a republic. Uh, they've also agreed uh, that the Kleine Germans are right. They're really alarmed by all the uprisings in Hungary and Italy and across the Habsburg Empire. So the Große Deutschland group right. basically they figured, lost. So Grosse Do- the Kleine Deutschland group must just think we're going to reproduce the Austro-Hungarian Empire with all of its problems yep. of overreach yeah yeah so they they basically said austria you are welcome to come in but you have to leave all the you know the non-german people behind in fact they did they they really do like austria they uh, they cheered in frankfurt when the news of the capture of prague came in which is a bit short-sighted you your fellow revolutionaries have just been crushed yeah, 19, uh, 1914 goes very similarly, as will. Yeah. So Most the of. Assembly have decided, since it's going to be a constitutional monarchy, we're going to have an emperor of the Empire of Germany. We're not going to offer the crown to Franz Joseph, because that would bring in all those non-German minorities. We're going to offer the crown to the king of Prussia, Frederick William IV. So they sent a delegation and made a presentation and offered the Prussian king the chance to be emperor of Germany, and he refused. And it's a little hard to understand why he said no. His reasons are fairly conservative ones. He didn't want to uh, alienate or anger the other German princes. He also uh, reacted out of snobbism. He didn't want to accept a crown handed to him by a bunch of university professors and shopkeepers and, you know, people with dirty fingers. He, he didn't want to pick up a crown out of the gutter, was sort of how he expressed it. So these poor, these poor pan-German assembly delegates go back to Frankfurt and say, he said no. So, so now what do you do? What, what reason do you have for still being there? And in fact, you, you don't have much of a reason. So they failed completely. And that left a a pretty sour taste in the mouths of German nationalists. Like, how did we screw this up? We had every single government in Germany, you know, uh, knocked over, revolution successful. And how did we blow it? Well, they didn't have any real authority. They didn't have any real political power. They certainly didn't have an army or anything to back up their their prop proclamations they were just you know yeah i think that's why when you look back at the 1848 revolutions it's like the big revolutionary wars um didn't really follow so it's it's kind of like so far you know the haitian revolution or the french revolution when you have a big or bolivar um you have a revolution and then you have a big war with the forces of reaction or the colonizers and you can't can't seem to skip that step it seems unfortunately no No. there's one more little footnote to this revolution the prussian king had second thoughts i guess he was kicking himself afterwards why did i say no i could have been emperor of germany damn it so he began to uh, put out feelers and find out if you know if the assembly members wanted to 
offer it to him a second time, maybe he could say, you know, I was too modest to say yes right away. Uh, there was still a, a rump of the assembly that was still sitting in Frankfurt, still debating. But I believe his intentions were found out. Uh, Austria was not that impressed. And the Prussian king was summoned to a meeting at uh, Olmutz, where he was categorically told, Nah, not happening, do not touch the crown. It wasn't just Austria, though. The Austrians were backed by the Russians, who did not want to see a, a huge German empire on their doorstep either. So faced with intimidation by Austria and Russia, the Prussian king backed down. So in Prussian or German history, this is known as the humiliation of Olmutz uh, in 1850. And with that, basically the revolutions of 1848 are over. But it's worth a look at what, what happened. Uh, as you say, why didn't they go further and succeed? Or did they achieve anything at all? Well, Europe got a little more liberal. But it was pretty obvious that nationalism was a much, much more potent force than liberal liberalism. Nationalists will take to the barricades where liberals may or may not. As I mentioned before, feudalism was abolished across Central Europe, so a win for peasants, uh, not so much for workers. The Industrial Revolution was still uh, coming, but they didn't really catch a break. Italian nationalists learned a really bitter lesson. They are not able to kick out Austria on their own. Even with revolutions in the Czech lands and in Hungary and across Austria, they still aren't strong enough to kick out the Austrian army. That means that if we're going to do this, we may need to find help, an ally. You know, like the French helped the Americans in their revolution. The Pope yeah. learned a lesson too. He had flirted with revolutionaries and got his fingers burned. So he published a book, The Syllabus of Errors, and he warned Catholics against the evils and dangers of liberalism and radicalism and republicanism and nationalism and all these horrible things that will get you sent to hell immediately. Uh, the Austrians... Looked themselves in the in looked at themselves in the mirror and realized, oh boy, we need to reorganize because we nearly lost everything there. In fact, if it wasn't for Russia, <coughs> we might not have regained our empire. So they owe Russia a favor, but they're also going to begin considering how do we keep a hold on an empire where, ethnically speaking, Germans are barely twenty percent of the population. And that eventually turned into the 1867 creation of the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary. They decided to share power with the most powerful uh, ethnic group next to the Germans. And that would give them 40, 40 some percent of the population. And that way, those two ethnic groups, Germans and Hungarians, could dominate all of the other ethnic minorities in the empire. And that configuration lasted until World War I. Yeah, it did. The uh, guy who negotiated the deal for the Austrians, Count Boost, uh, basically described it as uh, this would allow the two 
groups, German and Hungarian, to dominate the barbarians in their own half of the empire. Nice little description of... Nicely, yeah, nicely put. Uh, a German confederation was established. They, they decided to have regular meetings, sort of a United Nations of Germany. Um, Getting Austrian, ready for 1870, right? Yeah, yeah. The Austrians and the, and the Prussians were both members, but they were clearly rivals. I mentioned before, Russia was completely untouched, which uh, had <laughs> pretty important repercussions in, in a matter of just a few years, which we'll see in a couple uh, of episodes. Yes, two episodes from now. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, oh my God, there's a Bonaparte in France. How did, how did that happen? Certainly nobody wanted that, <laughs> but I guess they were all too busy to do anything about it. And where's that going to lead? Because we all know what happened with Nappy 1. Now, <laughs> is, is Nappy 3 going to start to become an adventurer? And the answer to that is, well, of course. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a podcast just about revolutions, um, a guy named Mike Duncan. And he's done, I think he's in the middle of the Russian one, but he's done like Haiti, France, the glorious revolution. Um, and he did a short series on 1848 that I listened to. Well, as confusing as I made it sound, there's a lot more detail to it in yeah. many, many places. But uh, what, what do you think of the uh, coincidence that Marx published the manifesto in 1848? Well, you know, I, I watched this, <laughs> there's this Chinese anime six-part um, his, uh, biography of Marx that I watched over a couple of a bunch of nights. Also, in preparation for this podcast, it's called The Leader, and uh, it's it's really interesting because he it it doesn't seem like it was a coincidence. It's it's like there was a that was a lot of what Marx and Engels were all about. They were all about like connecting to all these revolutionaries and have creating a, trying to create an organization, right? The international working men's organization. In fact, I think that was originally the title, like in the, in the, in the anime series, you know, Marx says something like, I, uh, I finally gotten it done. It's the, it's going to be called the international working men's manifesto or something. Right. <laughs> And then Engel says, no, no, don't call it that. Call it the Communist Manifesto. And he says, yes, yes, that's much better. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I don't, I think it was, um, and then I, what I, what surprised me was, you know, there's the whole 1870 Paris Commune story, yes. um, which I, Marx also talked about in the Civil War in France, I think was the book about it, but he like I thought they called themselves communists after the Paris Commune, but in fact, uh, the Communist Manifesto I think was a much earlier use of the term. I don't know whether there were whether people used that term before uh, the French, Manifesto. French Revolution Part One. Ah, oh, they called themselves commun- communists, no, or just co- no, communards. Communards, right? Right. Yeah, so it, it's it's fascinating. The, this is the period of history where you know you you can uh, Marx is a primary source on so many different uh, things that were going on because he was a big newspaper journalist. Yeah. So like even 1857, which we'll talk about a lot um, in India, Marx is uh, you know wrote a lot about that. 
Well, because he he wrote so many predictions. Yeah, I I can easily picture him getting the news about the uprising in Paris and going, "There it is! I was right." <laughs> and then, yeah, he, he was in the in the in the eighteenth Rumiere book of of Louis Bonaparte. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of bitterness, right? There's a lot of disappointment. Yeah. Well, yeah, as as I'm suggesting here, he seems to have really underestimated the power of nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. Socialists just continuously underestimate that until 1914. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when it is definitely their, their undoing in 1914 nationalism. Yeah. All right. So, uh, oh yeah. So next time we're going to do the Mexican American war. I started reading about it thinking we could jam it all in here and we definitely can't, but there's, uh, there's a story there to pursue. Mm-hmm.